0: Coming Back is a 100% listener-supported podcast. To support the show and to get your hands on some really cool podcast swag, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Your support keeps Coming Back ad-free, which is really awesome. Thank you. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm welcoming on my friend and fellow grief podcaster, Darwin Dave, whose father was killed when he was 10 years old. Also on the show today, I'm talking about how acknowledgement is not enough and how we have to act in order to heal. Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so grateful you're here today. Thank you so much for listening. Really quickly, before we start today, I've had a couple of you message me on Facebook, on Instagram, even send emails about making one time donations to this show and to the work that I do as an intuitive grief guide. First of all, thank you. And second, I hear you and Yes, I have created a new page on my website, shelbyforsythia.com called Donate, where you can make a one-time donation to the show for any amount that you choose. I understand that some of you are trying to narrow down the amount of monthly bills you pay or just don't want to create a Patreon account, or you just got your tax refund in the mail and you want to send some of it towards a worthy cause that you believe in. And now thanks to your asking and the magic of Squarespace website hosting, you can go to shelbyforsythia.com slash donate to support this show. Thank you all so much for continuing to listen and supporting coming back financially with your hard earned dollars. I see you and I am so grateful every single month to be connected with you. For the top of the show today, I want to talk about seeing, hearing, validating and giving permission to your grief and how sometimes those things aren't enough. So these are such valuable things, seeing, hearing, validating, giving permission to, and there's such big parts of the message that I spread here on this show. So much of grief, like I talked about with Katie Scoggins in episode 37 of Coming Back, is about ending the resistance we have to what's really going on in our worlds, letting the walls of, no, this is not my life, crumble, and really facing what our lives look like after our loss, releasing that tension that we hold on to so tightly in our bodies, and finally relaxing into, (sighs) okay, this is reality. All right, this is where I am. I don't want it. But this is my new normal. I acknowledge it. Julia Samuel, who wrote the book Grief Works, which I'm reading right now, has a quote that says, grief is finding a way of living with a reality that we don't want to be true. And yes, absolutely. That is so true. And this struck me so hard when I read it. Because so, so, so much of grief is about acknowledging what has changed Seeing, hearing, validating, and giving permission to our altered lives. Seeing, hearing, validating, and giving permission to our emotions, our energy levels, our different responses to what's happening. Seeing, hearing, validating, and giving permission to our hearts, which in all truth and honesty and our losses and our grief are doing the absolute best that they can. I seek you, heart. I hear you heart, I validate you heart, I give you permission heart. That is such a big part of grief and getting there is a massive energetic step in coming back in moving forward and taking steps because acknowledgement is recognizing that you can't go back. You can only go forward. But let me tell you something today, grief growers, something that's really important that I haven't said in this way on the show yet. Acknowledgement is not enough. Acknowledgement itself is not enough. Acknowledgement is so valuable. It's so valuable. In fact, without acknowledging how your life has changed and the fact that you're grieving, you wouldn't be able to accomplish anything else after that. You would be stuck. You would be blind, practically, not seeing. Acknowledgement is literally the place where we start to see with our eyes truly open. But acknowledgement alone of our grief is not enough. We must also act on our acknowledgement. We must begin to make Decisions, to strategize, to move, to ask questions, to start changing, to adapt to our new normal, whatever that means for our lives. There's a huge difference between people who have acknowledged their grief and acted, and people who have simply acknowledged their grief and done nothing. So, for example, my husband died, and I'm really lonely at night. Looks a lot different than My husband died, and I'm realizing I'm really lonely at night. I've asked my sister to come stay with me until I can work out another plan. I notice since the divorce that people raising their voices is a big trigger for me, so I shut down and I hide in my room. Versus, I notice since the divorce that people raising their voices is a big trigger for me. I shut down and I hide in my room but I'm working with a therapist to come up with ways to ask people to lower their voices in my presence and to protect my own energy when they do. Being diagnosed with cancer really scares the hell out of me. I feel paralyzed with fear. Compared to being diagnosed with cancer really scares the hell out of me. I feel paralyzed with fear. But I'm reading a book that my friend gave me about a woman with a similar story, and it's helping me feel less alone. People who acknowledge their grief and do nothing look like people who are stuck, unwilling to adapt, or full of excuses. People who acknowledge their grief and act look like people who are reaching, striving, trying, experimenting, fumbling, like Carrie Egan would say, or working. There comes a point, I can't tell you what this point is, grief growers, you have to to feel it, to decide it for yourself, because this point is different for everyone. But there comes a point when the gift of acknowledgement, this seeing, this hearing, this validating, this granting permission, the gift of acknowledgement turns into the curse of complaining, where all we're doing is seeing, hearing, validating, giving permission in this endless loop, in this endless cycle, when we want to talk about how bad, different, crazy, or out of control things are, but not do anything about them. And in these moments, when we do this, we are actively choosing not to grow. Because we're conscious, we're seeing with our eyes open. But what are we seeing in our acknowledgement? The same story played out over and over and over and over again. Yes, don't get me wrong, grief growers. You get points for acknowledging your grief, especially if you've never had to acknowledge anything this big or life-changing ever before. Getting to that place is a really big step. But you get even more points, even more points when you start to move and act. Any direction, doesn't matter. Just trying things on to adapt to your new normal, striving to catch up to everything that's happened in your life, reaching for answers and asking questions and stumbling, fumbling your way to this level ground, this new level ground to stand on. Because there comes a point when you can't lean on grief anymore. Grief is not your crutch. Grief is not your crutch. And acknowledgement of how you're feeling, that things have changed, that something scares you, it's fine. It is. It's wonderful to get to a place of acknowledgement. But it's step one on such a long road. Seeing is step one. The next step is action. At some point, you have to say, I acknowledged it. Now, what am I going to do? How can I carry the seeing, hearing, validating, giving permission forward into the physical world, the physical realm? How can I work on changing my beliefs, my habits, my routines to adapt to everything that's happened? How can I start to rebuild from this instead of constantly recognizing that it all fell apart and just replaying that in my head? What are you going to do to regain footing as a functional human in the world? What are you going to do to take care of your kids and your pets? What are you going to do to recapture your creativity or your passion project that was totally upended or suspended by grief? What are you going to do to be able to focus at work or at school again? What are you going to do to try to reconnect with God? What are you going to do to ease the tension or mend the distance in your relationships that was caused by your loss? Grief growers, there is so much we can do once we've acknowledged our grief. And yes, 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 yes. I will acknowledge here that acknowledgement and recognition and opening our eyes to our realities, to our new realities is the first step in coming back. But it is not the only one. We've got a long way to go on this road with grief. And the next step after acknowledgement is action. You've got this information. You know it to be true, whether you like it or not. Now, what are you going to do about it? You've seen that things are broken. You're feeling through these emotions. You know you're stuck. You're ready to not be. Now, what are you going to do about it? You recognize so much is different. You know there's help out there. You're ready to try. Now, what are you going to do about it? Acknowledgement is not enough. So let's get moving, grief growers. Can you tell I am so, so excited about this topic? Please join me, if you would, this coming Monday, March 12th at 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time for Facebook Live. We'll talk about all the things you've acknowledged in your grief and how you've acted on them to adapt to your new normal. If you're feeling stuck in your acknowledgement, you can see, you can hear, you can validate, you can give permission, but you just can't move forward yet. Join in the conversation, please, and maybe we'll brainstorm some small steps to get you moving on the road. All you have to do is like my Facebook page, Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up, we'll talk to Darwin Dave, whose father was shot and killed when Darwin was just 10 years old. Darwin Dave is an IT professional by day, photographer on some nights, and a podcaster the rest of the time. His podcast called Dealing With My Grief chronicles his journey since losing his father at the age of 10, which was some 40 years ago. And Darwin, I'm so excited to have you on the show. We have had a, I would say like a long distance grief podcaster relationship uh, for a little while now, which is cool. I appeared on your show uh, earlier in 2018, which is pretty phenomenal. And I'm so excited to have you here. And I will tell... All of our listeners who haven't checked it out yet, that uh, Darwin's podcast, Dealing With My Grief, was instrumental in not only helping me start this show, but helping me continue to come back from the loss of my mom. So, Darwin, thanks for being here. And as with all of our guests here on Coming Back, I would love if you could start us off with your lost story. Uh,
1: sure. Back in April of 1978, April 24th, 1978 to be exact, uh, when I was just 10 years old, my parents owned a convenience store, in a suburb of Missouri called uh, Kenlock. Most people know where Ferguson is, Ferguson, Missouri is. Kenlock is essentially the neighborhood that is adjacent to, to Ferguson. Matter of fact, if I walked out my house and crossed the street, I'd be in Ferguson. But on the night of April 24th, 1978, about 20 minutes after my mother and I had just finished taking my father his dinner for the evening, The alarm at our store went off, and consequently, we had an alarm at the house that also went off. And my mother picked up the phone to call my father to figure out what was going on, and she got no a response. So she hung up the phone, called him back again, still got no response. So we got clothes on very quickly and walked over to the store and found my father lying in a pool of blood face down, uh, lifeless, not moving. And when the paramedics got there, he was, they basically had told us that he had expired. He had passed. So it was discovered that he had died of two gunshot wounds, one in the chest and one in the neck. And that's essentially where my world turned upside down.
0: That sounds like I mean, I'm thinking back to what my world was like when I was 10 and what that would have done to my view of the world, to my spirit. This sounds really traumatizing.
1: Well, and it was. Well, it was and it wasn't. It was almost like I was having an out-of-body experience because and mm. in initially walking in and seeing him, my mother was screaming his name because I think she had known what was going on and what had happened. But I, could, the only thing I could do was hug her and all I could say, mom, it's going to be okay. Mom, it's going to be okay. Mom, he's going to be all right. And I can remember vividly saying that in an infinite loop until the ambulance got there.
0: Wow. Wow. That's incredible because I never, from all the times that you've told this story on, on your podcast, I've never had that picture of the two of you in the immediate discovery because you never really know what happens in that blank instant when everything changes. That's really incredible at 10. Did you believe what you were saying?
1: Actually, I did because at at that time, I didn't know that the situation was as dire as it was. And growing up when I did, again, as a kid in the late 70s, it wasn't like you have the violence that you have on TV now. So it's not like it's, it wasn't like I'd been even exposed to on television of seeing blood, gore, or things of that nature. This was like a first time, first person experience of of seeing anything like this. Wow.
0: So tell me about the days, months, weeks that followed. Like what was a funeral service like for you was there crime involved with this like what what kind of panned out over the next bit of time
1: okay well for the that was a monday he died on a monday and his funeral was on that friday and that entire week was one of those things where i wasn't allowed to be really more than about a sidewalk away from my front door. My friends, they would come up and they would visit me. Again, I could sit outside, sit on the front porch or whatever and talk to them, but I wasn't really allowed to go anywhere. And that was pretty much because up until, what, the Thursday before his funeral, the three individuals that were responsible for this crime were still at large. So they were arrested on that Thursday, And my father's funeral was on Friday. It was the very next day, on Friday. And that was when I guess it really hit me that this was going to be something that was final. Um, My mother, both of my grandmothers were there. Uh, My my father's mother was extremely distraught. And I think it was her reaction to the whole thing that, that really made me realize that this is real. And looking at him in a casket, he's not coming back. And it, I don't know what the future holds, but <laughs> I, it's it's just going to be real strange and real weird. And I, I have no idea what to expect. But the, the one person that really began to help me, or at least tried to help me make sense of it all, Was my mother. She told me in no uncertain terms that no matter what people told me, I wasn't expected to be, at least in her eyes, the quote unquote man of the house. I was still a child, and my only responsibilities in life were to go to school, get good grades, and to come home and do my chores, and that she would take care of the rest. And that sort of helped until it didn't. (laughs) I say that because. There was just no getting around walking into my house where for all of my life, there had been three people sitting around the dinner table, three people sitting in front of a television. It was just weird to be living in a space where he wasn't, and that I just never quite got used to.
0: There's another podcast called What's Your Grief? They have a project called uh, The Empty Seat, The Empty Seat at the Table, and just this feeling of absence. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm kind of curious because I know a lot of the focus of your show and even of our conversation here on coming back is about the death of your dad. But I'm I wanna know a little bit more about his life and who he was to you leading up to this loss as well, who he was to your mom and and maybe kind of some of that background, like what your relationship was like.
1: Well, my father to me was Superman, so
0: um, oh, I love so it.
1: <laughs> we, would, we would always hang out. So as I mentioned before, he had a convenience store and maybe about half the stuff that we had in the store, vendors would actually come and deliver in person. A lot of it, the rest of it, we would have to go get. So we would go and get things like all the candy that was in the store. We'd have to go and get soda or Wherever you are within the continental United States or the world, pop or Coke, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. We, we have to go pick that up. And so he would always play a game with me. When he was leaving, he would always drive slowly down the street, just slow enough for me and all of my friends to see that he was leaving. So, regardless of what I was doing, I would always leave my friends to go hang out with him because it was just cool to see him go. All the places he was going, well, and one of my favorite places was um so a place called Marcus Candy. If you can imagine a hangar-sized warehouse with every candy possible in the universe, this place was it. I mean, the only thing that was missing was Willy Wonka. It, it literally or like
0: had right. <laughs> it,
1: it, it, it 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 had it had right. It had everything you could possibly imagine. And just to go and see walls and walls and walls of candy from the floor to the ceiling, to me, was just amazing. But wherever he was, you know, I, I wanted to be. And anything that he was doing, I wanted to be doing. It was just, that's just how close we were. My mother, before all this happened, and I tell her this all the time, she literally, to me, was the person who was responsible for putting food on the table, and she was really the discipl- disciplinarian in the house. So mm. she was the one who would tell me that I can't go certain places, I can't do certain things. Uh, yeah, I mean, she was just she was just a person that lived with me and my dad. I mean, not to say that I didn't love her and I didn't respect her, but I worshipped the ground that he walked on, and... You know, she was just, she was like the third wheel. <laughs> but, but, <yeah.
0: laughs> the third wheel to your uh, father-son relationship. I love it. I've never heard described that way, but it sounds like he was like, like more of the buddy character. And she was kind of like mother hen or mother bear. Uh, yeah, and like, don't and do that. Put that down. That'll hurt you. Don't and that's, touch it. <laughs> and, that's, and that's exactly what
1: it was. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. But yeah, we, we, we'd have, we'd have good times. You know, it was always, it was always, you know, wherever he was, I was going bank um going to see different vendors, like i said we we were we were always together, which is why I was even that's what and it hurt even more so because that was a huge part of my life huge, huge part of my life
0: and that routine and and that just that time together that experience together changes so drastically it's not even in grief, we don't get the luxury of tapering off it just stops like these interactions, these physical relationships, these uh just like kind of casual appointments that we hold with each other of oh we're going to go to the bank or oh, we're going to go to uh, Marcus Candy or all these things they they cease to exist anymore and it's it's like wait it's like having whiplash i'm going to jump back to kind of the funeral memorial the days months weeks after uh, your dad's loss and kind of you said that your grandmother was the first reaction that you really felt looking at her you're like okay this is a permanent thing and I'm curious to know if anybody in your family or even outside your family ever approached you and told you exactly what was going on or that this was a permanent thing or if this is all stuff you kind of had to absorb from your environment and from the people around you because I know uh, grief with kids is a tricky thing. I've done uh, a couple podcasts on how kids understand grief in different developmental stages and had some people on who have lost people at a very young age and what kids absorb about grief is really... It's fascinating. So, how did people treat you, approach you, speak to you, or not speak to you after his loss as a 10 year old?
1: Well, uh, there are two sides to that. And during that entire week, and I'll, I'll say, let's say the week of and the week after his passing, a lot of my friends just simply had a morbid curiosity of exactly what happened. So, what did I see? what did I know? Did they know who did it? Just common things that you would think that children would ask their friends. I was asked all that stuff. And that to me wasn't necessarily so strange or so weird. And that whole week during, nobody really said much to me. And And just to put this out there, my father wasn't really the first person that I had lost. About six months earlier, his father, his stepfather, Passed away. And that was the first funeral that I can remember attending. So I had a sense or a feeling of exactly what was going to go on during the funeral, but nobody really ever sat down and talked to me to explain to me what was going to happen after. And it's one of those things I don't know how many people out there have the same type of experience, but really it was we're going to have this funeral, people are going to cry. We're going to go bury him. We'll get together for a repast. People will sit down, have some food. And essentially the next day, we're going to go on with our lives. And that's pretty much the way it happened. I mean, I I, I remember getting home late at night on a Friday, woke up uh, Monday morning, and it was basically school is normal and we just got to get back to it. And talking to my mother, who I interviewed on my show. You know, I asked her, you know, why didn't she sit down and talk to me more about that or try to get in tune with what she thought I was going to be going through? And her whole perspective was she just thought it was going to be best for me if I sat down, got it out that day or the next couple of days, and then we just move on with life. And that because to her, death was just a part of life. So she didn't want me to focus on it, have it fester. She thought that if she let me just get it out that day, that weekend, that week, that Monday, we just, you know, begin the process of moving forward.
0: Is that true for you? Did that resonate with you? Because that's something that when that came up in the interview, I really bristled at. I was like, oh, like, I was like, how dare you think we can possibly get it all out in a weekend? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, But then conversely, like having her having this picture of her in this mother hen, mother bear, this protective role of like you know, at the end of the day with grief, we really don't have any choice but to pick up and carry on. So how, I guess, how true is this for you? How true is what she said for you?
1: Well, I, and again, I'm going to put this in in context or perspective. For those of you that don't know, I, I'm 50 years old now. So in the seventies, I grew up watching Bugs Bunny cartoons. And for those that don't know, those cartoons really weren't written for children. So You sit down and you do things because you are supposed to do them, but you have no idea why. So the physical comedy, yeah, was funny, but some of the jokes that they were telling, I would laugh because, well, other people were laughing, but I never really got the joke. And it's sort of the same thing with what she said. She said one thing, but I never really understood what her perspective was. And not being 10, but as a 20 or 22-year-old, I finally got it. And that was, my mother is a product of the segregation age or era in America. So she spent her teens and early 20s in a segregated America. My grandfather was born in Mississippi in 1916. So to put perspective on what they thought about life, Life to them was all, everything in life was complicated. So I couldn't walk down the street without, you know, if I, I couldn't look somebody in the, in the face or the eye, I would have to step off the sidewalk if certain people came down, sitting in the back of the bus, using separate facilities, not being able to go to certain places. So life to them was complicated. So when it comes to death, that was just one of the that they had to deal with on top of all the other things that they had to deal with in daily life. So that's what I got from that when I was older. In that moment, I couldn't understand it. I just went with the flow. But it wasn't as if they were being insensitive or if they didn't get it. I guess another way to put it outside of the cartoons is that a lot of times adults like to deal with children and children-related problems from an adult perspective Mm -hmm. and you can't use, you can't use an adult's mind all the time to really help or solve a child's problem. But that's what I got from that. But it took me many, many years to come to that particular perspective on what she was telling me.
0: Kind of a principle that I've talked about here on this show before of grief and recovery from grief, especially when people say things like time heals all. It's like, yeah, but not in the way that you think it does. Because when people are like, oh, time heals all, it's like, just wait it out and your heart will fix itself. And that is not the correct or like even a realistic mentality to have with grief. But what the gift that time gives us across grief is more space of our lives to reflect back on and incorporate grief into. And so you're like, oh, I see that because of X, Y, Z, or I see that because I had this experience when I was 15 or this experience when I was 20, or they told me they had that experience when they were 20, which was a totally different type of world. So what time gives you is not necessarily healing, quote unquote, it's it's perspective. And if you kind of sit with perspective and, and make some meaning of it for yourself, yeah, you get this I don't want to say like a softer lens, but you get to understand more of why people did what they did, the circumstances in which they were raised, and then why you got the information that you got. It's very much a different and more like a researched version of they did the best they could with the tools they had at the time, which is another really hard, a phrase that I have a hard time hearing because I'm like, well, they should have known better, blah, blah, blah. Um, But yeah, especially looking back at my own grief and stuff, I'm like, people are they're doing the best they can with the tools they've got, and it's not always great, and it doesn't always turn out the best for everyone, which is why we still carry these griefs and these pains and these resentments with us. But being able to to look back and incorporate our histories and their histories with the information that we're given is a gift that, that time can give us.
1: Well, but the other part of that, too, is I think you, you've got to be open to either receiving or understanding that. I know a lot of people in my own personal circle who have lost people, and it has made them bitter and It's almost as if their heart is closed to anything that you either want to say or do for them because they're stuck in a place where and I hate to say to get past their loss, but they don't want to do anything outside of thinking about their loss. It might be a better a better way of putting it so it, it, for me. I couldn't live as somebody who was bitter, upset, angry, or moping all the time. It was one of those things where I had to make a conscious decision that, despite everything that had happened to me, I've got to do whatever I can do in this life to at least be happy, or at least try to be happy. You know, and that was the ultimate goal. Despite everything that I've been through, I could be a citizen or two, the same things that everybody else around me was doing. and but, but you've got to come to that decision. I think everybody's got to come to that particular decision on their own. And it's not at the same time. It's not at a week. It's not at two weeks. It's not at a month. It could be a year down the road. But I think everybody has that bridge that they have to cross for themselves.
0: Do you remember when you made that decision for yourself?
1: Yeah. Um, that's actually a two-parter. Ah, tell us. From the time my father died, until I was 14 years old, I will tell you, I was just basically walking through life. I was listening to, you need to move on, you need to do these things, but I didn't exactly know how to move on or how to get over, just, just go on with everyday life. So yeah, I was going to school, grades were decent, and everything was fine. But one day when I was 14, I, I remember it was like this was yesterday. I couldn't find any of my friends to play with. They were all either doing chores, they were off shopping with parents, whatever. And it was like the one and only time I found myself alone in that four years after he passed away. So I went to the park that I normally go to and I just sat down with my football and, and I just started crying. You know, I just it, it was everything that had been bottled up that I'd been trying to deal with and I just couldn't find answers for. I just, at that point, I I just couldn't deal with it anymore. So I sat down for about 45 minutes to an hour and I think Maliki stars that nobody showed up at the park that day. I had a lot of explaining to do, but (laughs) it it was was just one of those things where I just sat down and I cried and I said, okay, well, I've got to figure out a way to deal with this. I'm not exactly sure how, but I, I, I got to figure out a way." And that way really didn't come for me really until I was twenty years old. And I had run out of money to go to school. I was a student at Howard University here in DC. And it's like, okay, well, my mother has busted her butt, bent over backwards to do everything for me to make sure that I had everything that I could have everything that I would need, but it's time for me to sort of make my own way. And it was when I made a conscious decision to truly really make a break from being under her wing and to truly leave the nest that I had a realization that, you know, it's time for me to not only necessarily be an adult, but to try to figure out ways to deal with everything that adults go through. So that's paying bills, dealing with relationships, doing whatever I had to do to be on my own, but then to try to figure out exactly what I needed to do for myself to make those different things work for me.
0: Wow, and that's two very big moments in your life, this this feeling of being truly alone. It's just me here. I'm all by myself. And that in those spaces, those pockets of, of being alone is when these feelings can have room to come up. And then again, uh, taking this initiative of being like, all right, I guess I'm in charge of my own life. That realization of no one else is going to come fix this for me. No one else is going to pay for this. No one else is going to feed me like that whole. Yeah, that whole adult taking responsibility. Those are, those are really important revelations to have. Mm -hmm. And even more cool to me again, is that looking at, at time thing is that we can continue to have these light bulb moments as we continue to live our lives. I I fear on the show sometimes with my interviewees that there's this perception of grief happened, and then I saw the light, and then my life has improved since then. But I'm like, no, it's still this. <laughs> it's so I know I kind of laugh about it too, but it's this continual process of of waking up to things, and they don't they they're not always big, but sometimes they are. Sometimes there, I am all alone in the world, and I've got to pull myself up. I'm responsible for my own life, and my own uh, decisions, and they can come at any time, any age, any circumstance within any relationship. Yeah. So just just being open to that. Um, I'm going to shift gears really dramatically um, from your story. And I actually have two questions for you and they're totally unrelated to each other. But the first one is related to technology because you're in technology right now for a career, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'm interested because I have grown up with grief in a digital age when things like memorializing Facebook pages is a thing or even being able to go back and read my mom's obituary on the internet or like being able to, you know, and I was thinking while you were telling your story about the convenience store and actually pointing out locations like Marcus Candy and like, oh man, I wonder if we could Google Maps that like that was my first thing is like, oh, geographically, where is that? And then of course, my first thought was to put it into the internet. And then finding resources on grief, you find a lot of things online, a lot of people found this through the internet, through Spotify, through uh, iTunes, things like that, which is all connected to the World Wide Web. So, without this technology, or maybe with this emergence of technology, while you've grown up and lived in the world, like how has that morphed and changed your grief? Do you regret that certain things aren't on the internet for you to look back at them? I, there's a lot of questions here. Like, how do you how do you memorialize your losses in your life? Do you use the computer or the internet at all? Is there anything you wish could be on the internet for you to find? Uh, and how do you feel about grief on the internet now? Man. It's a lot. It's a really big question, <laughs> but I just kept writing down internet, internet, internet. I've got to well, ask about it because I'm like, this is probably well, one of the, like, I don't want to say the oldest loss, but it's it's a loss that's relatively far back in,
1: well, in just time. But believe it or not, it's not as far back as you think. Mm-hmm. Um, just... Um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, I was doing a web search, not only on my father, but also the man that was convicted of his murder. And mm. he is scheduled for a parole hearing, his first parole hearing in April of 2013. So, or 2023, I'm sorry, April of 2023. So, the first thing that I made sure that I did was to contact through the internet the state of Missouri Department of Corrections to make sure that I would be notified when that parole hearing would be, because I would at least like to make a statement, if not an appearance, and they will allow me to do so. And just in that, not only just in searching for his name to find out who I needed to contact, but believe it or not, there is a lot of the case law and a lot of the information related to my father's case that is in fact on the internet where it's been used either in other cases uh, that are referenced it, uh, cases that it has referenced, um, it just it just a whole lot of stuff. And that's basically due to the fact that once the death penalty in Missouri was reinstated in the seventies, the person who was convicted of killing my father was actually the first person who was sentenced to death under the new statute. Um, so there was a series of appeals and ultimately his sentence was commuted to life in prison. But to just go in and know that all that stuff is available on the internet. And when you look at certain transcripts, certain things that my mother said, certain things that are facts in the case, certain evidence that they had, it's almost like reliving that over and over again. So I don't necessarily think that that is a bad thing. I think that the internet, in terms of Facebook and all those other places, any way that you have the ability to express yourself is, I think, a great thing. Because while family gives you what they can, they may not always give you exactly what you need. So I I, I think that anybody that's able to reach you through whatever medium or media that they have, it's not necessarily a bad thing.
0: I like that perspective. I wonder though, do you ever uh, do you ever wish there were more uh, positive things on the internet about your dad, as opposed to just having case information? I am thinking like photos of a barbecue or like you know, I, mostly photos and things like that. But I know for me, when I miss my mom, I go back to her Facebook page and it's like all of us on a trip together or buying chocolate or my first glass of wine with her when I was twenty one, things like that. But just like these more. Uh, do you wish there was more than the case
1: well, online? Well, see, Shelby. Um, when I was your age, we had these things called albums that we actually <laughs> play a pictures and put them in, and and and, 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 and I still have those.
0: <laughs> I sound like such a millennial who only who believes the internet is the only thing that exists. <laughs> Don't I? That's so funny. <laughs>
1: So, so yes, I, we, I have plenty of pictures. There are pictures. I mean, they're not online. Um, the, the nice, the the nice thing about them being on the internet though, is that, you know, anything on the internet pretty much is forever as far as. So it's just a matter now of being able to preserve whatever it is we have. But yeah, I've got, we've got albums upon albums upon albums of, uh, different family events where every family event that we've ever had, um, I've got pictures of my father, from the 50s when he was in the military, uh, pre his relationship with my mother. So, I mean, I still have lots of things as well as keepsakes that were given to me over the years since he's passed away that I do have that, you know, a remind me of, of him every day. So, that's not a problem.
0: So, you're not uh, starved up for keepsakes by any means?
1: No, not at all.
0: Uh, I guess that was the heart of the question I was getting to because sometimes... I, especially when i get on google and approach google with my grief it seems like there's never enough and it's it's different because i live far away from the scrapbooks from the albums my mom was actually a scrapbooker so why this didn't occur to me earlier that you might have albums of photos lying around is ridiculous but they're all at the house in north carolina where i grew up right. and lived and things like that and i guess there's this there's this distance between me and 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 these memories in that way and i kind of like it that way cuz i don't like to you know I'm a minimalist. I don't like to have a lot of things in my house and things like that. But but the photos that I do have, I maybe have three or four pictures of her here. And that's sometimes I want more than that to hold on to. And I guess that was the the feeling I was getting at. Um, but yeah, so that feels good to know that, that you have access to all of that, that you feel like you have enough of it and, and that you can continue uh, getting updated on this case through the gift of the internet through the future, like into the present 2023. Um, changing gears to my other, uh, off the wall question. I know you've discussed this on your podcast before, but especially with everything that's happened recently in Florida. I'm wondering with your experience as a child, how you feel about guns, gun control, gun violence, using guns in crime. I'm sure you're so tired of like answering this question or speaking to this question because you do talk about it a bit on your show. Um, but how has your grief influenced your opinion on guns? Um, You know what?
1: I don't have any ill will towards anyone who desires to own a firearm. That is your personal preference. My own personal belief is that just because you can doesn't mean that you should. So that just simply means that maybe there's some people out there who shouldn't have access to weapons. But when this whole thing um, went down, and I'm not sure I articulated it as well on the latest version, or the latest episode of my podcast, or by the time this airs, that'll be episode 100, which is already out. I sort of tackled that. And the one thing, when these types of things happen, the one question that we don't ask is, why? And that was the whole premise behind the latest episode of my podcast, episode 100, which is, why are we not asking why this young man did what he did? So when I think about my own grief story, I'm not necessarily thinking about the guns. I'm thinking about Nicholas Cruz. So how does a man who essentially has watched a lot of people in his family die before the age of 19, what type of mental state is he in and what type of signals did he give off that people missed that allowed him not only to gain access to the weaponry that he did, but to actually put him in the state of mind to do what he did. So, I, and not to say that I'm excusing what he's done. I think that he needs to pay whatever price the criminal justice system gives him. I think that we need to do everything in our, behave, in our, in our, in our behalf that is humanly possible to actually begin to take care of people. Because the problem I have with this whole thing is we're a divisive nation, I think you're either black or white, Democrat, Republican, or in the case that you mentioned, we are either pro or anti-guns. And that once you establish that you're on one side of a particular argument, you pretty much have closed your ears and your hearts and your eyes to anything that the other side has to say. And I think there's always a middle ground to everything that we can come to a conclusion to say, okay, well, you can have guns, but maybe certain types of guns you can't have. Maybe we need to find ways of being able To make sure that people who might have a specific condition that might predispose them to this particular type of thing either go through some training or some additional evaluation. I'm not exactly sure what the answers are. I just know that we need to, in my mind, do more to to just look out for people as opposed to blaming tools for what people do.
0: Mm, That was very well said. I'm curious now, as we're kind of getting close to the end of our interview time, if you have any like concrete resources or recommendations for our listeners who are going through grief right now or seeking out resources for their own journeys, what were the things that helped you come back the most?
1: Well, you know what? In terms of resources, (laughs) those didn't happen for me until recently after I actually started my show. And- Hmm. That was basically through listening to recommendations that readers in the Facebook group or listening to you on your show and certain things that you had put out. Those resources didn't exist for me back then. In in terms of my coming back story and resources that I used, probably chess was the biggest thing for me. Chess was the biggest life lesson. That game taught me the biggest life lessons I I could ever have. But you didn't ask me that question. Um, You asked me resources. How about, the one book that I did read that resonates with me in terms of how deep loss could be is C.S. Lewis' A Grief Observed. That's probably something I could go back to over and over again. And that book I read probably about a year and a half ago on the recommendation of one of the listeners on my Facebook group.
0: I love it. Can we get into chess for a minute, though? I would love to hear more about that for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, shortly after my father died, a cousin of mine taught me how to play chess, and It was one of those things where in high school, which was a really particularly rough period of time for me, because the high school I went to was an all-boys Catholic Jesuit high school. And anything that you could do with two people, father and son, they did it. So bowling, golf, um, believe it or not, my school, we talk about gun control. Um, I went to a Catholic high school in the city of St. Louis that actually had a rifle range in the school. (laughs) So, 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 so so you could, so you could.
0: Unheard of in 2018.
1: So, so, well, well, my school had two things, two distinctions. We had the largest pool hall in the state. Um, We basically, it was a bomb shelter that they had converted into a rec room. So it had about 50 pool tables and then off one of the ends, they had like a, five-lane rifle range. So for like two cents a shot, you could go in and you could squeeze off a couple of rounds either during lunch or after school. We actually even had our own rifle team that competed in state tournaments. But but um, but getting back to the game of chess, chess was one of those things that sort of helped me navigate the minefield, first of all, of high school. I didn't feel comfortable bringing my grandfather or my uncle to the father-son events because I just didn't feel like I wanted to have to explain to a thousand other people why my dad wasn't there. If you didn't grow up with me and you didn't know my story, I didn't want to have to explain it over and over again. I just didn't want to go there. So my escape literally was chess. And that's when I found out that chess for me was a lot like my life. First of all, when you play a game and when your game is over, you're exhausted. Win or lose, you're exhausted. And grief for me has been an an experience that at times at certain times in my life has been completely exhausting, and it helped me to deal with the fact that sometimes I have to compartmentalize certain things just to get through what's going on in my life right now. So win or lose, I have to put aside whatever that outcome has to be, whatever that outcome was, to deal with the next game that I have to play. So you know, I can worry about it later, but if I lost. 5 minutes to go and I've got another game to play in 10 minutes. Somehow I got to find a way to get through that, get past that, put it behind me, maybe go back and think about it later, but right now I've got some other things I need to do. And that's just sort of the way I live my life. I mean, I know that there're certain things that I have to do and I can deal with them in a certain time frame, but maybe the time frame for me to deal with things may not be now. Maybe there might be a better time for me to actually sit down, reflect and evaluate what I've either gone through, or what I'm going through, and it just sort of helps me sort of navigate the minefield that I call life.
0: I really like that. And it speaks to how, how games, which can kind of be seen as like abstract experiences or like not entirely of the world experiences, can, can mirror real life for us and teach us things that maybe we wouldn't have learned just walking around as humans in the world. That's really cool.
1: I love that game. And I, I play it every chance I get. So it's it, it's for me, it really is a microcosm of life.
0: We'll have to play chess sometime. I haven't played in years and years and years, but uh, so you'd kick well, my butt. Take, but take but we'll have to play me. sometime. You can teach me some stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> <You're>
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, Darwin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And before we wrap up, I do want to tell people where they can find you, your show, as well as if you have any uh, events or interesting things coming up in the future for us.
1: Well, believe it or not, shortly after we hang up from our disconnect from this interview, I'll be headed off to Northern Virginia. So I'm going to be on a show called That Anita Live, which will probably air a couple of weeks after this show airs. It'll definitely be on YouTube. But if you're in the D.C. metropolitan area, it will be on Fairfax Public Television You just have to check your local listings and I'm not exactly sure when it's going to be out, but you can always catch me on my show, Dealing With My Grief uh, is the name of the podcast and you can subscribe to it or any of your particular podcatchers, whatever you use by going to dealingwithmygrief.com.
0: That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, coming back today and sharing your loss story with us, but also how you came back, how you're continuing to come back into this world of technology and Talk of gun control and chess.
1: Thanks for your time, Shelby. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Mr. Darwin Dave of Dealing With My Grief podcast for joining us this week to laugh about scrapbooks and to talk about perspective and what it was like to grieve as a child almost 40 years ago. Darwin came back by acknowledging his personal responsibility in taking care of himself, by reading C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, and by playing chess, which kind of mirrors grief. You can find a link to Darwin's work where you can listen to his podcast, Dealing With My Grief, in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, March 12th at 1 o'clock Central Time, and we'll talk about how acknowledgement is not enough, and how we must take action in order to come back. Thank you to all of you out there who are supporting the show on Patreon, and who have asked to one-time donate online. You are truly incredible. As a reminder, Patreon is a set-it-and-forget-it way to support the show each month, and to get fun rewards like stickers and off-air time with me when you pledge, you can find a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. If you liked what you heard this week, support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and by telling a friend about coming back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply Shelby If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text three one two seven two five three zero four three, or email me at Shelby at Shelby subject line podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I'm proud of you, and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.